Right, what, uh, what I'm doing in, tonight, and uh, I, well, it's part of what I'm doing over these two or three weeks uh, on looking at God and uh, at man, men and women as God intended, really looking at this passage, which we might as well open up and look at, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is a significantly uh, challenging or even controversial passage, I think. It's been called in some of the commentaries the most controversial passage in the pastoral epistles, possibly one of the most controversial in the New Testament. But that's because of where we're at as a culture these days. Uh, I guess in some generations it would have been less so. But I think, uh, nevertheless, we want to tackle it. I want to use it as a basis for exploring how do we work out what the Bible is saying to us today. And I also want to use it for the bigger sort of picture stuff of looking at men and women and then ultimately uh, the women's roles in the church. Because this is in the context of church. This is the context that I think Paul's addressing, particularly when the church gather together, public assemblies of the church is probably the background for everything written in these verses. So we're going to read again 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 down to 15. I'm only going to look at a few of those verses this, morning, this evening. I forget them. Always preaching in the morning, aren't I? Right, let's look. Verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Very difficult verses. Um, But I actually believe they're going to be really useful to us and God's going to speak to us out of them. And to do that, I wanted to start, as I did last week, by talking about how we approach the Bible and how we learn from it. We talked last week in the morning of the Bible being our final authority in matters of faith and conduct because we want to know what God says to us. We want to obey God and to obey God, one of the best means of doing so is to hear what he's saying through the Bible, his word. Now the Bible is an amazing book. It is a book only, in that sense. The word of God is a living thing that comes from the book to us. The word of God is a sword of the spirit. But it's only a sword when it's in us and being spoken by us and uh, proclaimed by us. As a book, it's not a sword, it's just a book. We don't mind writing in our Bibles and scribbling in them because they are tools towards an end. God speaks to us out of this. This is our main means of receiving his word. But his word is something that comes from this into us and changes us and works with the spirit in us to make us different and to form us. God's word actually achieves things in our lives. And so it's a living thing which needs to get from the book to us through our reading, through our listening, our praying and even our studying too. And uh, we just need to think about that. It's not like this is a lot of propositions, a lot of rules. Okay, what, what's the rule for this? That's not, it's a living word and we have to get it into us and the Spirit of God will get hold of it in us and change us. 
Now, to help us do that, we need to have some thought about the nature of the Bible, just quickly. The Bible, I love the Bible. I really love the Bible. I think the Bible is amazing. It is a unique, unique document. Don't let anybody really undermine your Bible. It's a fantastic book. It's, it, it was written over 1,600 years in terms of time. Massive length of time, really, or possibly more. 44 different writers, 66 different books. It's a library of books, really. Written in originally three different original languages, Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. Written on three different continents, Europe and Asia and North Africa. It, it, it's, it's an amazing book because it holds together... And it is actually the account of what God spoke to people at different times and seasons. Men and women of God heard God's word, had revelation, and they were inspired to write what they wrote down. Some things they heard from God they didn't write down. Some things they wrote we haven't got. We know we haven't got some of Paul's letters, but we've got the ones we've got. And the Holy Spirit led them and inspired them. Now this unique book, I think, stands up, has stood up to the test of time amazingly well. Uh, Over 2,000 years of enemies and friends examining it meticulously, trying to find out what it's all about. Friends doing that, the ones who love it, going into enormous detail. Enemies doing it to exploit it. And it stands strong still. It's not been undermined. It's a, it's a wonderful book. John Stott says, referring to its broad base and yet amazing unity, he said this, In view of its diversity of human authorship, the best explanation for the Bible's unity and coherence seems to be the overshadowing activity of a single divine author behind the human authors. And it's, so it is something God has spoken to us. Now, what God did was speak his word to real people in real history. So the Bible has eternal relevance and it speaks to all of us in every age, but it was in fact given at a time to real people and in real settings. And each document in our Bible had an occasion. It had a reason to be written. There was a background. There was, it was the word of God then. And it, there was something of such authority in it that it was kept and seen to be of vital importance to others. Our New Testament, which is where we're going to be focusing, I guess, we will look at Old Testament scriptures next, occasionally over the next couple of weeks, but the New Testament, particularly, what happened was very early on, all the churches uh, of those, that first generation gathered together the documents that they felt carried authority. That's what it was. It was very self-selecting. It was not a contra- difficult thing to do. It, people knew that God was speaking to them through this one and that one. And quite quickly, even in the New Testament itself, it talks about the writings. Things were gathered together. Scriptures. Paul's letters were referred to by, by Peter as scripture. They were already being seen as inspired and authoritative. And when eventually the canon of the New Testament was finally settled, probably in 300 and something AD, it wasn't Contrary to the things like the Da Vinci Code, it wasn't some great lottery at all. It was a very, um, to be honest, what happened was most people agreed on the authority of what we have in our New Testament. But from various corners of the Christian world, people wanted to add their own little bits in. And so there was dispute about some of the peripheral books, like Jude and James, but actually others like 
Thomas's Gospel or something like that, that people wanted to add in. North African Christians wanted to add this one in and say those from Rome, this one. And in the end, people had to say, well, what do we all agree as authoritative? And our New Testament was that. And frankly, the canon of Scripture, the, the collection of New Testament books, has not really been challenged by any theologian, properly challenged in any effective way, ever since then. People know this is what the early church received as the authoritative word of God. That in these books, God is speaking to us. But God has chosen to do it through very real human situations. And that makes it all the better for speaking to our situation. It lives for us. It lives in our real history and our real struggles and battles. And the human side of the Bible is part of its great delight. It's, it's not like that. It's just what, like Book of Mormon or some of these things. One person's writings over a short. Even the Quran, you know, is a very different document. The Bible is all these different people: David, Abraham, Moses, Paul. Uh, you know, different people experiencing God and writing it down, writing to others. There's so many of the letters in the New Testament, the Word of God. But what God gave them then and there. And what he was saying to them then and there is very important for us here and now. And so as I did say last week, and I make no apology for re-emphasising this because it's a background to a lot of what we have to do, we do validly need to look at what it meant to them in order to learn what it means to us. And, And in a factual fact, we need to keep the essential biblical context in view all the time we're studying the Bible particularly with some of these sort of tricky New Testament scriptures, keep them in view, the original context, as a way of sort of controlling and directing the the word God speaks to us. We're not allowed to take it completely away and make it of of it what we like. Um, and, and, And that's a wise thing to remember. It's a basic principle of interpretation. As we approach these verses in 1 Timothy 2, um, we will need to bear that in mind. We will endeavour to think, what did it mean when it was written? And then, as we do that, it will, out of that, say the same thing to us. There will be foundational, timeless truths that it will say to us. But they will have been applied in a cultural setting. There is no question about that. They will have been worked out. An easy one to quote is when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He washed the disciples' feet and he said very specifically, if I wash your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. And, uh, you know, I know the Pope does wash once a year, doesn't he, with a golden bowl. He washes 12 little boys' feet, or feet, foots, feet, feet, or something like that. Um, But, um, you know, by and large, in our culture, we don't wash feet. But that doesn't give us any less challenge that Jesus is talking about servant leadership. He is demonstrating something pretty remarkable. And if you like, we can quite easily transpose it to our culture and say that means anybody, including leaders, shouldn't be afraid to get their hands dirty, clean up, wash up, clean the toilets. There are modern equivalents to washing each other's feet. And you can make it much more punchy when you actually do take the principle and apply it. Don't get a golden bowl out and do some ceremony, but actually clean the loos at camp or wash up after the community group meeting when everybody else has gone home or, you know, whatever. These are the realities of serving and of doing that. So that's an easy one, but it's an important one because we need to always understand there are things we don't want to undermine the Bible. We're not trying to explain it away. We want to actually hear what is God saying to us. What's God saying to men? What's God saying to women? What's he saying about men and women? What's he saying about 
how we dress and it reflect, what's it reflect, what's it saying about how we behave in church, what is he saying about us and how he wants us to work things out. We really want to think that. So we're not trying to explain it away at all. We're studying to get the author's main intention, God being the author, and get it applied in our lives because it's so important to us. If we're sincere Christians, and I believe we are, if we're a sincere community of Christians, this is very, very important to us. We don't want to just make up stuff because it suits us. Now, I'm looking for a few minutes now at particularly verses 8 to 10. And uh, I'm doing that almost as a sort of, I think it's a valid thing, I think it's part of what I preach, but it's a sort of exercise to to, to work at this. How do we hear what that's saying to us? Because I can assure you that Christian groups, sincere Christian groups, over the years have often taken, for example, verse 9, and made it a very strict and sometimes legalistic rule about what women can and can't wear. So, I mean, the slightly light-hearted title, What Not to Wear, is, is I'm not going to do a Trini and Susanna thing. I probably would be very unwise to even try. Um, but... But in a sense, there is something here. There are things it would seem not to wear. And we've got to work out what's, 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 what's going on here. What's he saying? What's the Bible saying? Well, I want to look at, as I say, 8 through to, to 10. Now, it won't be too long on that. And then I, I just want to give you some things to think about and perhaps, if we can, have a little bit of time for feedback. Now, these verses, like the rest of what I'm saying, they're, they're, they're in a context of the behaviour of men and women, particularly in a public context of worship. That is the background of the whole thing. How to behave in the church. What the church should be like when an unbeliever or an outsider looks in. What would they see that would be inappropriate and what should they see that would be appropriate for people who profess to be Christians and following Jesus with his life inside them. So, as we read these verses, we've just read them, verses 8 to 10, we have to already do that little exercise of saying, what are the fundamental word of God truths, and what was the way they were applied at that time when Paul was writing to Timothy with regard to Ephesus way back nearly 2,000 years ago? Now, if we take the men's one bit first, verse 8. At face value, you could read that and say that this verse is equally clearly saying and instructing that when men pray, they must always lift their hands up. That the correct mode of prayer is like this. You could say that. It says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and disputing. So there are two instructions that don't appear to be different at a very, very simplistic, straightforward reading. So do we think that the only valid way of praying is like that? Well, no we don't. As it happens, funnily enough, being charismatics, it's quite a useful verse to notice because it reminds us that the most common mode of prayer in the first century, probably in the Jewish community and the Christian community, was like that. So for all the battles that have been fought over raising your hands in modern Britain in the last hundred years, they're nonsensical battles because actually at the time of the Bible, most people did that when they prayed. And so actually it was just a way of describing prayer. 
Uh, uh, it's not a rule that you've got to pray like that. You can pray with your hands clasped. You can pray with your hands down. It's not fundamental in that sense. It's a description of the way people prayed and possibly from it you could learn quite a bit. It may be the most appropriate way to pray, but I'm not going to make a rule for you to always have to do that. Nevertheless, we should never pray and worship holding anger and dissension in our hearts. You can't say, well, that sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you raise your hand, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're angry and fed up with everybody. Sometimes you're everything sweetness and light. You know, some you win, some you lose. No, actually, that is rubbish. You couldn't say, this is a mighty clear challenge to quite a controversy-ridden place. If you read the context of Timothy, there's a lot of disputing going on, a lot of anger. They're saying, look, when people are praying and worshipping, they should be doing so with their hearts clear from anger and dispute. And that is a very real challenge. It's a challenge to us. It's always a challenge. We should not come and worship full of anger at God and anger at people, anger at something. We shouldn't come with a, with a disputing, div- divisive spirit, grumbling and complaining and arguing. I think it's possibly important that he particularly mentions men. I don't think it's anything to do with the fact that only men prayed because we didn't, because it wasn't only men who prayed. If you read in 1 Corinthians 11, women are praying and prophesying. So, by the way, we're already learning silence can't mean saying nothing, but that's for another day. But, but actually, in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about women praying and prophesying. So he isn't saying praying is only for men. What he might be saying is that the men are more likely to be angry and divisive. And I think they can be. I think men have an anger problem often. I don't think, I think men get angry. I speak as a man. I think men hold anger. They get, I think men love to dispute and argue and about detail, what's right and what's wrong. They can easily get drawn into disputes. And actually, Paul spends quite a bit of time in Timothy's letter to Timothy, warning him not to get involved in, in, in disputes and, and futile arguments. And so I don't know if Timothy would, but he doesn't want him to get drawn into them. So actually, I think men need to be particularly aware of the fact that you can come in a bad spirit and worship. And you can come and your anger and your disputing, you're endeavouring to prove your right, which is, can be a bit of a male tendency, should have no place in the context of worship and prayer. God doesn't want you coming into his presence like that. That's pretty clear. I think it's a very important truth too. I'm not belittling it at all. I think it's clear. I don't think it's difficult to see that we're not actually into a verse particular about the physical means by which we pray, but we are into a verse about the spirit in which we pray and worship. And our public worship should not be poisoned with those attitudes. And men particularly have got to be sensitive to that and not allow themselves to be full of anger and disputing when they're in the church of God and gathering with other saints. Then he goes on to women. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair, gold, pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Well, when you get to these verses, here you could also say that women are exhorted to dress with modesty and decency and specifically not to have braided hair, gold and pearls. Now, it's a bit like the holy hands. You could say, right... So, you can wear silver jewellery, but not gold. Uh, and so on and so on. You, you could do, couldn't you? You could get quite legalistic. And funny, and people, of course, as you know, do, uh, whether you can braid your hair or not. 
But if we apply some interpretive principles, it becomes a lot clearer. The fundamental issue is that Christian women should never be dressed in a way which is deliberately suggestive or seductive or ostentatiously showing off wealth by their dress, flamboyantly displaying almost uh, ostentatiously that they are a wealthy person and really proud of their looks and showing off their wealth. Far differently from that, their inner attitude is much more important. Their inner spirit is what, it, what they're about. And that's where their beauty will fundamentally come from. Their beauty will be enhanced, enhanced, wherever you like to say it, from inside, not by putting a lot and lots and lots and lots of attention to outside things. And we'll get on to that in a moment because he then specifically mentions a few adornments which we've already mentioned in verse 9. Now they are definitely adornments that had inappropriate signals in the culture of first century Asia. And alright, we don't immediately know that from the Bible but it's not hard to work it out even from the Bible. I don't want you to give you the impression that you've got to have loads of background knowledge to even understand the Bible properly. Background knowledge and what I'm about to talk about is quite helpful and you can get it from many a straightforward commentary. But actually careful reading of the Bible will tell you some of what I'm going to say. For example, if you were to look at Revelation 17 and um, verses 3 to 5, you would have a, a vivid picture of a an expensive, extravagant prostitute, the red whore of Babylon. And if you were to read the description sometime of the uh, Babylon, it's an image, it's a metaphor of the world's power. There are two women that come up in Revelation. One is really a, a picture of the church, the people of God actually, more precisely, both the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. And that is in uh, Revelation it's 12. You can read about her. She's the one who births what is obviously Jesus. <laughs> a revelation uh, is 12. And she has a beautiful dress, but it's totally different. It's all to do with the sun and the moon. She's clothed in the sun and the moon. It's all very, very, very vivid, poetic sort of imagery. And then you get in, in Revelation 17, the, 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 the Babylonian woman, the, the, the prostitute, the, the, the one who is, is a terrible, it's the force of evil in the world, the world system. Now, you can see how she's dressed. If you read it for yourself, there's all gold and, and, and pearls and reds and purples. Don't be worried. Some of you, oh, I'm wearing red and purple tonight. Oh, no. But don't worry. We're talking culturally. <laughs> okay. What I'm saying is you can work out some of this stuff even from the Bible itself. But with a little background knowledge, I can tell you this. In the first century, braiding of the hair was very, very common with prostitutes. And in Ephesus, the Temple of Diana was served by thousands of female prostitutes. And they all had small braids in their hair. It was a sign of being a, a priestess brackets, prostitute, in the temple of Diana. Braided hair, particularly with gold and pearls in it, was something very closely associated with religious prostitution, which is something that's hard for us to get our heads around, but was real in the first century, and went on a lot. And these temples were not little dirty things in the corner. The temple of Diana was a beautiful building that dominated Ephesus. There was an awful lot of money had gone into it. 
And the same in Corinth, you had the temple to Diana, uh, not Diana, Venus, I think, and also the temple to Apollos. And, and often in these temples, which were huge and extravagant, really gross sexual sin went on. Apollos, it was all built around homosexuality. And there was, uh, the archaeologists have found some very, very um, pornographic sort of wall carvings and all sorts of things. That was in Corinth. Now, in, in Ephesus, the big one was the Temple of Diana, and it was built around uh, uh, prostitution, really, and orgies, all sorts of things went on in there. Now, the, these priestess prostitutes did braid their hair and put gold and silver in them. That's one thing that was very clearly relevant then. And most people would have known uh, about that particular fashion style, if you like. But also in the first century, women generally used their hair as, a, as one of their big decorations. So uh, wealthy women would have enormously elaborate hairstyles piled high and uh, woven in with gold and pearls. So there's a lot of money and time went into these rather elaborate high, I don't know, beehive hairstyles, I suppose, <laughs> with gold and pearls in it. So what we have here is definitely a cultural reference. It's a reference to hairdos that carried very real signals in the first century. They carried signals that were totally inappropriate for Christian women and for public setting of worship. If all the, 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 the Christian women were dressed in a similar way to the prostitutes, the Temple of Diana, that would not be appropriate. If they were doing what every... Um, indulgent, wealthy, sort of Roman woman or Greek woman did and just sort of coming to church with these massive hairdos with all gold and pearls in. It was not what the signals they were supposed to be giving out. That's not where their beauty lay. But I tell you, this is not about telling Christian women to be frumpish and conceal their beauty. That is not what these, these verses are about. Just let's pull a quick background. The Bible does not forbid adornment on women. Just read Song of Solomon's. Read about the perfume and the beautiful jewellery that's mentioned. There's, there's some very amazing sort of stuff there in Song of Solomon. But if you read just the book of Proverbs and you know it, if you know it, Proverbs 31, the, the very noble woman who is highly held in high regard in the Bible, she clothes herself in fine linen and in purple in verse 22. That's not wrong. She clothes herself, so purple's okay, ladies. The, fine linen and purple is there. So even though the prostitute's wearing purple at the, uh, and red and scarlet in uh, Revelation, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong, you know, within the colour. So, so, so there there's a woman who gives attention to her dress. And then the church is positively portrayed as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That comes out again in Revelation 21 verse 2, but elsewhere as well. So the sense that you can dress beautifully to adorn yourself, is not really being removed by these verses. That is not the thinking. But there is a sort of positive, and this is actually the nub of the whole thing, there's a positive thrust to these verses that is very interesting and, and is the core of it. And it's this, that women are, they are to make themselves beautiful. They are, they are to adorn themselves but don't follow the world's way of doing it. The real key is something to do with what's going on inside you. It's not that you can't have nice clothes, but in the end, the world thinks all about the outside. The world thinks, 
how you do it all on the outside is what it's all about and puts massive resources into it and indeed often does it in a way to be deliberately sexually alluring. Sexy clothing, seductive clothing, suggestive clothing. That is how the world thinks. But Paul's saying, you, don't, you can be beautiful, you can beautify. There's a positive to the original. It's not be, be unbeautiful, it's be beautiful. Be beautiful. But realise that God will do something inside you that will make you beautiful. And it's true. The world's idea of beauty is totally external. It really is skin deep. And it's, it's often about, as I say, money and sex, like so much. But as Christians, we're being encouraged to think differently about ourselves, to give attention to what we are inside, and realise that that enhances our beauty. If you've got the inner radiance and joy of a vibrant faith in Jesus, a love for God and a love for his people, it makes you beautiful, honestly. And it actually does something good for men as well, guys. It does something for us. It comes through. A loving heart comes through. A gracious spirit comes through. It really, really does. It can actually make a plain person quite beautiful. And I mean that in, with absolute sincerity and without any hint of, of anything condescending. I, I mean, I think you can see it. You can see people, and it happens with guys as well, who you think are comparatively, you know, maybe not the best looking in the, in the place, but they're so full of love and Jesus that people love them and get, like them and, you know, and they often don't have trouble having company. <laughs> and and it's, it's something that's inside. It really, really is. And that, I mean, it's a truth. And it's a truth Paul's reminding them of. And also, sadly, the other side, we can all know, perhaps, people who would technically look stunning, but they've got such a sour and harsh spirit that it really takes quite a lot from them. You know, their spirit and attitude just takes it right away. And, you know, and, you know actually, it is about the inside. It really is about the inside. It is a biblical perspective. It's not only in Paul, it's also in Peter. We won't read it tonight, but 1 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4, mentions the same thing and puts this extra word in, unfading. Because this is, this is the truly uh, ageless thing. It's not something by L'Oreal or something that gets rid of all the wrinkles. The truly unfading beauty is one that's inside. That radiance can come through even as time takes a bit of a toll on the outside. There is actually a real beauty to that sort of inner love for God, love for people, that inner uh, uh, serving heart, good deeds are mentioned, and other things are mentioned in 1 Peter. Now this is not just like, oh right, that's interesting. This is God's word. You see, we're trying to say, what does God say to us? What God says to us is, when you pray, I don't want anger and disputing, and I get in your, I don't hear your prayers, and I don't want it. And that, God means that. And here, God's saying, look, I will make you beautiful if you'll give me the chance. Let me fill you with my spirit. Let, give your energy. Let the church be a beauty parlour. But a beauty parlour that works on the inside beauty. And it really will work. If you're, if you're, you're so, oh, you know, I'm frightened nobody will ever like me or find me attractive, I tell you there is something you can work on. That's this inner stuff. And we can all do that. And, and you know, you can see, I mean, I, I don't want to know. I, I don't know how to put it. I know I've seen people over the years. And you think, they're really... 
really lovely. I mean, I mean, men and women, they're really lovely people. And when you stop and look at you think they're actually really... I'm, I'm probably pretty grim-looking myself, so bear this in mind. But these people are really no oil painting. And yet there's something in there that's just so attractive. It's true, isn't it? And this is what it's saying. Make yourself beautiful that way. It's not saying turn yourself into a frump. It's saying don't go for the world. Don't look at, think, oh well, you know, the prostitutes of the Temple of Diana, they're really trendy and they're wealthy and all the, you know, they get a lot of men around them, so we'll try their stuff. I mean, I'm not sure if it was as simple as that, but that was, in effect, what he's saying. Watch that you don't just pick up the whole value system of the world around you. So we're not going to be ending up arguing about, is it silver jewellery okay and gold not? But we have got to think through, how does this apply in our day and age? And I don't know if we're going to manage what I'm going to do. This is a bit experimental, folks, tonight. But I've actually put down a few questions that I wanted you to talk about together. And then if we had time, and I trust we'll have some time, I would like to sort of have a bit of public feedback.